Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today I'm welcoming David Anderson Hooker, PhD, JD, MDiv, who is the founder and principal narrator for Counter Stories Consulting. Counter Stories engages a conversation and visioning partner with international, national, and local civil society organizations, religious groups, organization leaders, and social entrepreneurs to craft narratives of their preferred future and align organizational structures and internal practices in the furtherance of their constructed narratives. For almost 40 years, Hooker has served as mediator, restorative circle steward, facilitator, community builder, scholar, and advocate. Hooker is a former assistant attorney general for the state of Georgia. He later had a private legal practice focusing on civil rights, including prisoner rights and special education. He has worked in Bosnia, Croatia, Cuba, Kenya, India, Myanmar, Burma, Nigeria, northern Uganda, the Bahamas, South Sudan, Somaliland, and Zimbabwe. He is a graduate of Morehouse College with a BS, Washington University at St. Louis with an AM. University of Massachusetts in Amherst with an MPH and MPA, the Emory University School of Law, JD, the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, MDiv, and the University of Tilburg in Tilburg, Netherlands, PhD. Hooker is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, UCC. In all of his preparation, he still believes his best professional training is as an understudy in community theater and as a student of urban partner dances such as Detroit Urban Ballroom, Chicago Stepping, and the Cleveland Hand Dance. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Uh, I am Lauren Richmond, Jr., and today I am welcoming the Reverend, Dave, Reverend Dr. David Anderson Hooker. So thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? No, I think that, you know, the bio is more than enough. Great, great. Well, thank you so much again. Appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, share if you would. I always like to hear from guests just about your faith journey, what that looked like in the past, and uh, what that looks like today. So I was raised um, in a Black Baptist kind of tradition, not a particularly progressive Baptist tradition, but um, you know, just kind of the community, church as community, community as church uh, experience where uh, people who in other parts of their lives were not necessarily offered a dignified existence, could get cleaned up and come in on Sunday, and there was a certain amount of relief and uh, release and capacity to be to experience themselves as dignified as what the church offered. And so that's, I grew up in that and, you know, getting speaking parts and singing parts and all those kinds of things. And at some point, though, I recognized that the church just maybe it's tradition, maybe it's the theology, but they really didn't have a space for the voice of children. Uh, and so when I was able, about 13 or 14 years old, when I was considered 
um, old and responsible enough to do this, I left my parents' church and went to find a church of my own where the voice of children and youth was more honored. And so it was still a Baptist church that I found. It was a progressive Baptist church, um, but it allowed me a different thinking about how voices get included hmm. and that the sense of arbitrary exclusion or kind of certain groups of people being excluded because of tradition or practice has always been a uh, pet peeve and a driving force in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize that later on. Um, you know, later on, college and everything, you go to church, you do all those kinds of things. And But as I started getting closer to and responding to a call to ministry for myself, then I had to pay attention to polity, church policy, and yeah. some, some of the things that you would never see that are behind the scenes that you kind of can get a glimpse of, but you don't recognize what the significance is for those things um, until you're really deciding where am I going to you know, set my bucket down, who, who's uh, group am I going to play with? And one of the things that I came to learn, because I was um, in a Methodist tradition when I was beginning my ordination process, and I came to learn that I love bishops as long as they're not mine, right? <laughs> so, um, so I ended up, I landed in the United Church of Christ. And it's for me, there's a space where reckon. Um, where reconciliation, redemption, inclusion, incorporation become really important, and the United Church has that kind of drive towards an inclusive space. And so I love that. Yeah. I love that about the disciples. Yeah. Um, and now I've kind of, while I'm still very much part of a United Church of Christ congregation, I've also uh, become part of a small but growing uh, movement. We consider ourselves refugees, like people hmm. who are trying to get outside of the dominant narratives of uh, church, particularly dominant narratives of Christianity that don't really point towards uh, liberation hmm. and don't really emphasize the need for creating um, spaces that reject some of the larger dominant narratives, economic and political and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And so I, I've spent time in, in and among a group of thoughtful and committed and heartfelt folks. And so that's been the journey to this point. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I love your quote there. You love bishops as long as they're not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I also wrote down, I'm intrigued by this, you know, you, you noticed early on and how that shaped your work, how voices are included or excluded. Uh, very intriguing. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, it it has a parallel because I also had a, a dear friend of mine uh, in elementary school um, who we went well. I went to a high school that tested. Everybody tested in the city. It's a public high school, but the top percentage of test takers get invited mm -hmm. and got all of the advantages for college preparatory work and right. things like that. And I have a dear friend who was 
smart, much smarter, I think, intellectually gifted than I am, who happened to be wheelchair bound. Hmm. And he wasn't even allowed to try to test in because the building didn't support people who had mobility challenges. And so for, for me, that was one of those places where my call for justice and this arbitrary exclusion kind of blended themselves. And there was nobody at the time in the church who, you know, could tell me why that was wrong or that we should be organizing to undo that, you know. Um, And so I, I, I needed to be in and around a faith community where people said that kind of injustice is unacceptable as part of our faith. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, what's a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you? So uh, I'm closely attached to scriptures, but also to, I love reading the uh, sayings of the Desert Fathers and some other contemplatives Mm -hmm. and kind of spending time in kind of a quiet time. Sometimes it's 15 minutes, sometimes it's as much as an hour in kind of reflection on some of these um, thoughts, sayings, you know, learnings from the Desert Fathers, from Howard Thurman, Mm -hmm. you know, Richard Rohr, to some extent, Thomas Merton, some of the contemplatives like that. If I might, if I may ask, what is it about those contemplative folks that stir something within you? I'm curious. So, I, I um, I've only recently been able to articulate huh. that I think that one of the problems of faith these days is it comes with too many answers and not enough questions. Whoa! And my understanding of the way of Christ was that it presented a mystery, hmm. you know, and that it was a thing that was unfolding that we had to live into, and that there weren't certainties you know, an already always established system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the those folks, Howard Thurman, Thomas Merton, um, you know, St. John the Divine, all those they they the some of the other desert fathers, they they remind us that this faith pursuit is fully mystery. Hmm. Right. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well I I want to just keep asking you questions about this here, but uh, there's so much stuff I want to, uh, so much more I want to hear. Uh, so let me introduce a little bit. Uh, how I came across your work was uh, my region. Let me use the correct vocabulary here of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in the Central Rocky Mountain region was hosting a narrative project, mm-hmm. and uh, you did some work workshopping, I I suppose we might call it. Um, And I was really intrigued, but perhaps before we jump into that, if if you would share a little bit about kind of your, your broader work consulting with churches, maybe, maybe how you got into it and what kind of drives, what really motivates you about that work. Yeah. So, so my um, background professionally is, um, 40 years, at this point, it's 40 years of mediation, conflict transformation, and peace building and trauma healing at the international levels and at the local and regional level. 
And midway into developing a sense of understanding of conflict transformation, I came to an appreciation of how narratives and not just stories, but mm-hmm. how narratives really shape and guide um, the way that we show up in the world and the way that we perform in relationship and the kinds of structures that we build and the resources, how we distribute them and and who we're willing to listen to, who we extend testimonial authority. Hmm. And uh, so having studied law and public health and um, psychology and science uh, biology, particularly, I, I realized that a lot of our narratives are also shaped in our theology, hmm. and it's a mm-hmm. hidden, embedded. But it it's hidden, but it's also embedded in our identities in the way that we show up in the world. And so, I began using narrative approaches for communities that have been in conflict and are coming out and trying to see themselves. Uh, going forward, but also uh, you know, organizations, civil society organizations, uh, how they can envision kind of a shared future that incorporates everybody and allows everybody to survive and thrive. But the nature of narrative is it is long-term work, hmm. and it has the capacity to impact at the level of the individual, at the level of the family, at the organization, at the community, at the region, at the nation, internationally, and over time. So there, your narratives shape your immediate actions, what you see as your 10-year horizon, your generational horizon, era, and age. And there really is only one institution that I'm familiar with that has both permission, authority, and tools to deal with people at every one of those levels of organization (laughs) and over every one of those time sequences. Hmm. And that's the church. Yeah. And so to change many of the, um, the challenges to meet many of the challenges that we face today, that we're likely to face in the next generation, I, I'm really committed to having the church involved in that project. This is just a slight digression, but it's along those same yeah, lines. Yeah. Last week, um, I was in Washington facilitating a really fascinating conversation among uh, advocates who are faith-based advocates. Mm-hmm. And on the second day of the meeting, we became aware that the Catholic Church has finally uh, renounced the doctrine of discovery. Yes, yes. So the doctrine of discovery set into motion much of what is now uh, problematic today. So that's 500 years mm-hmm. where um, the impact has you know, been the foundation for racism and genocide and capitalism and all kinds of other things have part of a pillar, the doctrine of discovery, which is something issued by the church. In order to clean a lot of that up, to to address environmental issues and challenges, because we have a different understanding, not of discovery and conquest, but a different understanding of stewardship, uh-huh. all of that came out of the church. And it's going to take us a couple of hundred years to undo the work that the church has done. Wow. And so we might as well get at it, and the church should be part of that. They were if There's a Sierra Leonean proverb that says, the one who would 
break a thing should first be aware of how to build it back. Hmm. The church should have some work in mm-hmm. uh, building back towards a future that incorporates, that includes, and creates space for people to flourish. So, Well, I'm discouraged about it needing to take so many hundreds of years, but also what I know about transformation work is that it will, uh, especially yeah. 500 years worth of problems. So I appreciate that perspective. Um, so I, I'm fascinated, again, kind of what you said about narratives and how they work at all levels and the church has that authority. So you brought this kind of narrative work again, um, and I, I might butcher for some of my disciples' friends, disciples of Christ friends listening, I might butcher the 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 ins and outs of the project. Uh, but the denomination uh, of the Christian Church Disciple Christ on a national level has been hosting these narrative projects. And as I understand, that's the broader work that you're working as a part of. So this happened in my region here in the central Rocky Mountain uh, region in uh, in the Colorado area, Lafayette, Colorado, at a church. And I was fortunate to attend one night. And, an, and I'm going to kind of set up here, if I may. So uh, Dr. Hooker, for our listeners, we, got, we were gathered in the sanctuary, and Dr. Hooker showed us a video of the, the movie Doubt, which is um, – it's Viola Davis and uh, what's her name? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, thank Meryl you. Meryl Streep, uh-huh. And a really, really compelling clip. Um, I was fortunate. I watched that movie as part of a seminary class on films, interestingly mm. enough. Uh, so there's such good – it's such a great movie uh, for mm-hmm. that title, isn't it? Uh, but he shows us this clip. And if I remember, it's this um, – where Viola Davis, the mom, is having a conversation with Meryl Streep, who's what, like the head mother – Mother Superior. Mother yeah. Superior about kind of the, the I don't know, the angst or unsure what to do with the, the broader situation. So Dr. Hooker then has us take a break, gathers us back into a, a classroom setting. He, he then kind of pulls the, the, the viewers, us who had been participants, says, what do you see? And correct me, Dr. Hooker, if I'm remembering incorrectly. Um, but he pulls us and it kind of makes two circles and like, what's, what was bad about that video clip? What was good things in that video clip? And I remember like the, the kind of all the bad was just stock full. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, there was good things as people brought mm-hmm. forth from that video clip. And you'll have to correct me here if I'm, if I'm not remembering exactly what you said, but this is what really intrigued me. You said something like, what if we focused on the good? Yeah. So, so what we were doing there was identifying kind of problem, what we not, not good or bad, but the problem narratives, like what Mm -hmm. is happening here that seems like it constrains people from being fully who they are. Vi- okay. Viola Davis wants to be the best mother she can be. You know, Meryl Streep wants to be the best mother superior. The there's a child involved. There's a, you know, there's a priest involved. There's a 
another parent involved that and they're not in the scene but they're in the scene mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and so what do seem to be the forces we start with this notion that the people aren't the problem right the problem is the problem and so how would you name that and so when you start naming kind of some of these challenges and seeing how they create constraint that's i think the circle that you describe as kind of what's bad it's like what how okay. are these how is how are these problems uh being produced and then what are the what does it generate if if part of the problem is the notion of kind of a hierarchy mm-hmm. of power uh and then also you know economic constraints and race mm-hmm. what is that producing what are people doing how are people acting in the face of that because what you want to know when you when you say the people aren't the problem when we name the problem then you get to notice that several people are reacting to the same problem so it's not that the people are the problem the problem is the problem and how are we noticing how people react to that problem because that's producing the context. Hmm. In the same way, at the same time, everything that's happening in that same scene isn't problematic. There are some really good and wonderful and tender moments in the same conversation, yeah. that same little yeah. clip. And so how do what often happens is people get focused on the problematic and they forget to notice the other uh possibilities, the the unique, you know positive outcomes that are also happening in the same moment. And then the question isn't necessarily how do we focus on the good, but if you choose between these problematic narratives and these unique counter narratives, Mm -hmm. if you had a choice, would you choose one or the other? And if so, then how do you organize your life? How do you shape your relationships, your the way that you use your resources? How do you re change structures or extend testimonial authority so that this becomes the more dominant narrative, right? Mm -hmm. This narrative where things are tender and there's caring and there's love being expressed and there's some effective communication going on and some, how do you create that as the, the dominant narrative for this community or for that group? So let me, let me workshop this a little bit, if I may, with sure. you in real time, and hopefully it's helpful to the listeners here. So again, uh, the counter one counter narr- narrative that I think you mentioned, uh, and I certainly notice, is the amount of love that certainly Viola Davis has for her son. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really powerful. Uh, you know, she portrays it so well. It's such a powerful mm-hmm. scene. I'll stop gushing over the acting ability of both those actors. Um, but I think you could also say, or at least I would say, I think there's some level of strong care and concern from, from Meryl Streep, right? Right. So talk more, if you, if you would, about, so that counter-narrative of love, there's, there's a lot of love for this young child, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, that, and so that's why you want to talk about the thing that produces the actions and not the actions. If you only think of the actions, you forget to notice what the problematic is or what the uh, unique possibilities are. Mm-hmm. But if you notice like what's making those possibilities, when 
when both Viola Davis and Meryl Streep in their own way express a care and concern for the child, mm-hmm. it sounds very different. Yeah, yeah, right. But if you if you go down to the and you look at it, you can say, well, they're both trying to express a care and concern right. for the child. Well, what else would be important as part of their expressing a care and concern for the fi- the child, the violence-free, the success in schools, and some of the other things that they were asking for or seeking, right? Um, so you get to notice all of those. I would say that the people who were creating a threat for the child the people who the the father or some of the bullies mm-hmm. were actually also in their own way trying to protect the child from a life of misery wow they had in mind yeah. that pursuing yeah. this way of being right. and this identity is actually going to create the likelihood of a life of misery yeah. and so all of them are reacting to this concern in very different ways. That's yeah, that's very powerful. Um, and I'm I'm going back to your your main point there that when through this, if I'm if I'm processing right, then through this line of thinking, then the people aren't the problem. Um, and, and maybe this is simplistic, and I should be seeing this. And, and what is the problem? We might say. Well, well, that that's what they that's what you were naming when you talked about kind of the hierarchy and race okay, and the right, okay, misinformation okay. and um, the the separation of the spheres of life. You know the the power dimensions, the mm. both gendered and raced and economic yeah, okay. power and the abuse of power, the misuse or the misallocation of resources. Those were all things which, when they mix produce all kinds of things. It's not like there's one problem mm. that produces one outcome. Mm-hmm. There are multiple components of a problematic that produce all kinds of uh, both problem-constraining uh, stories and also uh, stories that present the possibility of liberating full flourishing, right? So, so they're all mixed in there together. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then— your approach is let's not try to tackle these problems. Your approach is how can we, uh, maybe my words, and, and tell me if you think of different wording, foster, engender, co-create love. Is that fair? Well, how do we co-create a context or an environment okay. in which things like love and compassion and caring are more honored, are more likely. Uh-huh. So this is the thing uh-huh. about when there are multiple narratives present yeah. in your life, every action that you take affirms one of those narratives Whoa. as a choice over others. Okay. Actions, and so the I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I need it from my notes. So actions affirm narratives. They affirm a particular narrative okay. over another. If there are multiple narratives that are present, uh-huh. that are available, like we saw in that little clip, there are, there are multiple narratives that are available, and the choice of action um, decides which among those narratives you are affirming, right? Mm-hmm. And the ones that you affirm become your habit. And your habits continue to produce the context that you live in. And so the question isn't, 
how do we show more love? The question is, how do we create a context in which the choice of loving and being compassionate and being thoughtful and being protective is as likely or more likely mm. than the choice of being violent or repressive or dismissive or racist or something like that. How do we create that context? Because what you want is for it to become habit so people don't have to think about it so often. Yeah, you know? yeah. When you, when you change your diet, when you're trying to eat better, right, 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 it's good. Part, you change your diet. Part of what you do is you change the practice of how you shop. Get rid of all the junk you food. Stay, yeah, right. You, you don't bring in junk foods. You stay on the outside where most of the grocery store on the perimeter where all the live stuff is. Yeah. You don't go nearly as much down the aisles and then you don't have it in the house. And then, and so then it becomes a habit to not eat certain ways. And so then when you're out and you've got a choice, there are oranges over here and there are, you know, Oreos over here. I, I have a choice. I, my habit is to have an orange. That's how I satisfy my sweet, mm -hmm. you know, my sweet tooth is just over here. And so what you're trying to do is create habits and create the context in which others who come into that community are also performing the habits and, and responding to both the problematic and the possibility in the ways that you would want them to perform, which is to create space for everybody to fully flourish, to people to be included, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so it's it's becoming more conscious of the way that your choices, your small, your micro choices, mm -hmm. not just your macro choices in the big moments, yeah. but your micro choices at every given intersection of life are in affirmation of the the life and the context that you say you'd want to live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I don't know where I heard this recently, but I was hearing some conversation about the limits of willpower and, uh -huh. and talking about how when it comes to to diet or you know things like bad habits like stopping smoking um american culture tends to to promote willpower right when if i'm hearing you right and i think this was this conversation i was listening to it was about it's really about creating contexts for healthier habits right right i don't i don't need to use if every time I'm trying to make a good decision, I have to use extra energy. Yeah. Like every time I right. open the pantry, right. there are three or four different kinds of cookies and there are, you know, sweetened nuts and that and I, every time I open the freezer, there are a couple of, you know, tubs of ice cream. <laughs> that means every time I'm making a decision, I have to use energy that overcomes a desire that I might have. And so creating the context mm -hmm. so that, you know, so those aren't necessarily the micro decisions that I have to make give me the capacity to make meso and macro decisions more effectively because they're part of my habits and they're part of, they become part of my identity. The way that I know myself is being generous and healthy and, you know, exercising and those kinds of things. And so 
as that is more and more part of my identity, then it's less and less a matter of will. It's just me being who I am. Hmm. Well, I want to bring this back to church, although I can I can already hear in your responses some of uh, how I imagine this would impact churches. Um, I had I had a little bit of experience with a consultant using some narrative prod, um, narrative work with me in my church, and this this point about people not being the problems, the problems of the problems. Certainly, I imagine like me. You're well acquainted with these, what many churches are facing across America with decline, whether, you know, declining attendance, declining uh, offerings, you know, decline, discouragement, um, certainly these broader social challenges. How might a pastor or a group of church leadership say, we want to change the narrative. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but begin to, uh, uh, you know, notice other possibilities if I, if mm-hmm. I have your words correctly here. So um, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, the kinds of folks that I read, the, the okay. Desert Fathers. The, mm-hmm. One of the things that I think contributes to the declining participation and the cl- declining appreciation of churches is that they present themselves as places with answers. Mm. And so if they had an answer that is 10 years old or 40 years old or 2,000 years old, then people today who are framing their questions differently— right. Don't see this as a community that's interested in engaging in the questions of the day, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're trying to change the narrative of the church to a place of mystery, a place where we come and we ask the wonder questions, the questions that inspire awe, the questions that cause us to create the possibility for transformation. Because answers are black and white. There's, you know, once you have an answer, good. it eliminates all the other choices and possibilities. So if I'm not, if I don't see myself on the upside of your answer, mm-hmm. then I don't see myself as needing to use this as a community that's going to advance you know, my possibilities for flourishing, my own exploration of who I am. Mm -hmm. And so how do we become spaces for engagement with mystery? Hmm. I'll speak as someone who grew up very conservative, and I wonder, listening to you, I wonder if this is why so many walk away from, you know, fundamentalist or very evangelical churches, because you know, it's a clearly black and white, like, this is the truth, take right. it or leave it, right? And I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and and not only is this the truth, but it's a truth that we have not examined yeah. carefully for the last 200 years, the last 2,000 years. We decided it actually the 16th century or, you know, in the 11th century or something like that. And it has stayed this way for the entire time. And so an unexamined assertion, it's really difficult to be in an effective 
conversation with people whose primary mode of communication is unexamined assertion. Hmm. Yeah. Got to write that down here. Um, so I want to go back to, again, how we frame the conversation or, or, or discussion around, again, this this um, conversation between Viola Davis's character and Meryl Streep's character and and the, the possibilities of love. And if if love, how, how we might what, co-create, we're saying co-create mm-hmm. love, how might that change systems and, and structures? Again, let's, I, I want to like apply that to a, a church. Uh-huh. So again, thinking about a, a church's narrative might be, we're declining, you know, we don't have enough resources. Um, might part of the conversation be, and again, I'm kind of imagining it through your two circles there. You know, is part of the is part of the goal then to I'm thinking out loud here, working with a church to say like, you know, yes, you know, to get them to think like, hey, we're nimble, we're flexible because we don't have we're not bogged down by budgets and then kind of run with that kind of thing. Like how might that foster reimagining? Well, so the 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 reason that you know we use like that one clip to start off as a practice mm-hmm. and then to pull out both the problematic and the counter narrative is because they both exist in that space um, at the moment. And so um, while the church may be focusing on the declining numbers and things like this, what they probably are overlooking, if they're talking about that and trying to raise more money and do that, they're overlooking the kinds of care that's extended between and among uh, members and the kind mm-hmm. like the communication and the compassion mm-hmm. and some of those other things that are happening that make us a community that, that cause people to still feel like this is a place where we belong. And so even with the declining numbers, the people who are there experience themselves as connected right. and cared right. about and seen. The passion for the church. Right. And so if we were to be, connected and cared about and seen uh, as part of a community, what about the people who are right around this building Mm. who don't see themselves as being heard, seen, or respected? Mm. How do we present ourselves not as a place where there are answers, but as a community that is willing to walk with you in compassion and care? And like, what would we do differently Mm -hmm. if that's what we wanted to be known? Because I have a sense that if the people in the community knew that part of your story, some of them would wander through. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm sorry, I'm writing this down here. What would we do differently if we were known by a different story? Right, right. And that's the, that's always the question. Like, if this other narrative, if we wanted this to become our dominant narrative, one of care and compassion and uh, consultation and and inclusion, if we wanted that to become our dominant narrative, how do we change relationships? How do we change our resource distribution? How do we? What structures would we have to shift? Our ministry structure. If we, for instance. If our relationship to the community is primarily through a uh, Wednesday night 
uh, feeding ministry uh-huh. and a clothes pantry, mm-hmm. then what the community thinks we think of them is the only way we know of them is in their deficit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're not giving anything to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, But we know of each other at a deeper, much more, you know, a, a level far beyond the deficits. When you're sick, I don't just think of you as sick. I right. also think of you as somebody who has all of these other gifts and graces, mm-hmm. and I engage you fully in relationship. How might we take that practice into how we do our our feeding ministry, our, mm-hmm. our clothing pantry, our um, other outreach, our child care ministry. How do we do that in a way that reflects this as the narrative of who we are? Hmm. And what I love about this is it's not like it's some external implementation about basically you coming in being like, you need to have a worship band or you need to yeah, have yeah, a yeah. livelier service. It's like, what's in this community? What are some, what are your values? Right. It's already you, here. Yeah. That that is just not fully because I, I happen to believe that in every one of these congregational spaces, sometimes it's so drowned out by some of the mm. dominant mm-hmm. kind of exclusions and the loud voices and things like that. That but if you ask, there are a bunch of corners mm-hmm. where somebody is doing you know, a little bit of the work mm. that can become the counter narrative. It's not to bring in one from outside. Mm-hmm. It's to build on what, you know, what's there and also to build on their disappointments. Mm. Because if they're disappointed or frustrated that something is not happening, mm-hmm. that means that they actually have a narrative that it could or should. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. And so then what would it take? For you not to be disappointed, like not to give up your disappointment, but to reorganize so that disappointment wasn't part of your experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's a place to build as well, right? Wow. Yeah, this is good stuff. So um, one last thing here, maybe, or a couple more things before we take a break. So I heard this from another conversation I had uh, with two authors making the point that story and storytelling is the best way to to undermine the bureaucracy. I think that's what I'm hearing from you. Is that fair? Well, yes, and I make a huge distinction between story and narrative. Right. Okay. Okay. And it's a really important distinction between stories and narrative. Stories, this is the quick synopsis of it. Stories are like cars. They move us from one place to another. Uh They get us along. But the narratives are the highway system. Hmm. So they shape what direction a story could actually go, what what kinds of stories make sense, what kind of stories don't make sense. Children okay. haven't been informed of a lot of narratives, and so they tell stories that we say they're wild, fanciful right. kinds of things because they're not constrained by the dominant narratives that we think that as adults they should embrace, hmm. right? So, again, I'm kind of thinking out loud here. So... If I'm hearing you right, this is where even a, some storytelling could get off the rails, so to speak, in a church, because if the, the if the narrative is one of, you know, we try new things and it always fails, or we're right. not good at reaching new people, or no one wants to come see us, yeah, those are how the stories to you to you, I like that highway, like yeah, the stories will be aligned with that, that particular 
And other people won't listen to if you tell a story of joy mm-hmm. in the midst of people who are experiencing depression. They <laughs> kind of won't. They're going to slide that to the side. That that may yeah. be an exception, but that's yeah. not who we are. Boy, that's good. Yeah, you know. And so you the narratives that constrain what's possible also constrain how you're willing to listen to folks. And if you've got folks who are too happy, mm-hmm. who are too excited, yeah. who, who see too much possibility, yep. you'll actually try to exclude them from the community because they're they're trying to remind you that there's another possibility even in this space, right? Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but, you know, and it's certainly not this way in, anymore, but like in, in Boston, like the Red Sox for whatever, 80 years, they never won a championship. So the, right. the narrative... And the the Red Sox fan can bust me for this if they want to, I guess. But like the the narrative was like, you know, we're always gonna we're always gonna come up short, right? Yeah, that's so interesting, so interesting. Um, let me let me give you one more thing uh, before we take a break here. Is there anything? What's maybe one piece of advice or one thing you'd say to to a pastor or a church leader? You know, trying to trying to do this work. So I think it's really important for pastors to examine their own uh the the narratives like really even having a small team of people that can work with you to begin examining the narratives that are being proclaimed but those narratives are also being sung like they're just because it's in the bible doesn't mean it's for the upbuilding of the kingdom mm-hmm. just because it's in the hymn book doesn't mean it's for the good of the order mm-hmm. right there's some songs that we ought to stop singing if we want to have a less violent world we can't have songs about christian soldiers and marching com- on know, though we got to cut and so how do you then align mm-hmm your proclamation and your praise and your worship and your teaching and your stewardship with the narrative that you actually are trying to put forth and not just allow tradition Mm -hmm. and historical practices to overwhelm that and to thwart that as a possibility. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Reverend Dr. David Anderson Hooker, and this conversation has been fabulous. Dr. Hooker, I really appreciate it, and I hope I hope it's helpful to our listeners. I have some closing questions for you. I always tell folks you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, if you're if you're Pope for a day, what that might might that day look like? What would you want to do? Sort of thing. Um, well, there are still a lot of uh, narratives of the church that. Uh, exclude that repress, and so if I only if I only get one day, I'm going to put some orders in really quickly to kind of create some stuff, including creating, you know, a, a commitment to Ubuntu to a connect to mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. our interconnectedness. Because if we recognize our interconnectedness, then some of those things that we tend to do to exclude mm-hmm. would automatically be problematic. It would address gender issues, it would address environmentalism, it would speak to the economy, all kinds of things. So we, let's get that you let's be, get that. I guess that you better work on some some hand strengthening for all that writing you do. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Um, 
I I mean, Howard Thurman, for sure. Mm -hmm. I love to spend some time with Howard Thurman. And right now, um, we could benefit from some Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hmm. Like, during tough times, is there a way to be faithful and loving and compassionate that doesn't necessarily violate some of the moral and ethical principles of the church? Like, who—and and Bonhoeffer would be a wonderful counsel for that, because right now the church is in peril of completely losing its capacity for transformation in the world. Wow. Well, it's— it's scary stuff. I mean, as someone who loves the church, it's scary to hear that. Um, but I don't disagree. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? It really depends. It will it will remember that there was a struggle, that there was a deep contestation for the narratives that were going to become dominant. Are mm-hmm. we going to be autocratic, exclusive, continue our repression, or is this the time that flourishing breaks open? Right. And we what what the what history will remember is that that contestation was happening. Right. So will there they'll it will remember the fight mm-hmm. and time will tell which part won, mm. but you know, it, the, the, what history will remember from now is that there were people who were willing to contest. Hmm. Hmm. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Uh, that we would be willing to re-examine the principles and practices that limit full flourishing for everybody. Like in order to make um, the invitation exciting, not to proselytize, not to change, not to convert people, but to make the invitation to Christian community um, and uh, exciting, to make it really invitational. Yeah. We have to be willing to re-examine a lot of the uh, ideas that really were based in capitalism with a Western hierarchical male understanding of the world mm-hmm. and and from that and so i'm i'm hoping that we get enough refugees that we would be willing to um continue to examine that question to create a counter narrative yeah this is fabulous um uh, share with folks how they can connect with you um get get acquainted with your work that sort of thing so anytime you're searching for counter stories um, you can find work on counter stories. And then because I'm connected to so many different institutions, um, just kind of uh, searching me and you find some of it at Duke and some of it at Boston and some of it at Just Peace and, you know, some of it here in Atlanta and all over the world. So just find those ways and then feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. I know I found it fascinating. I hope it's helpful to our listeners. Um, Really appreciate the time again. I always uh, leave folks with a word of peace, so may God's peace be with you. Peace. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. 
It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.